Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the great name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we come by the power of your Spirit. Lord, may your Spirit minister to every person in this room. And may we hear your voice in the scriptures. May we see your movement in the life of Ruth. And may we understand how you move in our own lives as well. Come Holy Spirit, give everybody here ears to hear and eyes to see what you want to say to the church. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord God Almighty. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I am uh, back from vacation. I've been on vacation for a little while and uh, back in the pulpit. Glad to be back in the pulpit. I am very thankful that uh, I got to take a little break, but I am also just as thankful to be back with you all. I've missed you all. I know some of you are first-time visitors today, and so welcome. It's a good time to be here. Uh, We're starting a brand new book in the Bible. So we usually just move through books of the Bible, and we just finished uh, the book of Jonah and the book of Matthew before that, and today we're starting the book of Ruth. Now, uh, probably for many of you, the book of Ruth is, uh, you don't know it very well, you've not heard the story very closely, but it is definitely one of the best stories in the Bible. Uh, just on its own. It's a captivating story. It has all the elements of a, a great book or a, a great movie. It has great characters. It has tragedy. It has drama. It has friendship. It has sadness. It has twists of plot. Uh, there is romance in chapter 3. There is redemption in chapter 4. Uh, and then it ends with a happy ending. Okay, So it's, uh, it, it starts really rough, as you can see here today. Today you've come to the most depressing, sad part of the book, so welcome. And, but it, like any good story, there's always a crisis, and then there is a solution and redemption. And so uh, that's what we're going to see today in the book of Ruth, and uh, I hope you guys uh, really enjoy this story. Um, we're going to cover it for four weeks. All right, now this series in the book of Ruth uh, we're calling Patience in Providence, Okay. Providence is the idea of God's invisible hand, God's care in all creation, so that God is, is working in ways that we don't even know. Sometimes we're very aware when God is working in our lives, and we're, we're very aware of like certain circumstances and things that happen, and we go, okay, that definitely, God provided for me, or God took care of me, or God was there for me in some way. But what this book is actually teaching us is all the ways in which we don't even know God is with us that we don't even know that God is working for us, especially in the most trying and painful times. And the section that we're covering today is an incredibly painful time in the life of of the people here in the book. And uh, it is a gut-wrenching beginning to the story. But God is working in it. Now, I want to say this. I know that in talking to many of you and being the pastor here that many of you are going through intense times in your life right now. Uh, intense pain. You have, uh, there are people with health problems. There are people going through uh, broken relationships. There are people going through uh, uh, facing a death of a loved one. There are people going through divorce. There are people all, all through this congregation, there are people suffering. And what we need to know in the midst of our suffering 
is that God still loves us and that God is with us. Because what we often do is we, we automatically assume that if things are going wrong, it must mean that God doesn't love me. And if things are going right, okay, God is with me. But what the scriptures actually teach us is that God is with us in the pain, in the trials of life, in the suffering, in, in all that we face as humanity. That God is working. And he's especially even working in the ways we don't even know that he's working. And this is what it means to have faith in God. It's not just to have faith uh, understanding, like listening to his word. Of course, that is primary. It's not just in the good things of your life. You go, thank you for these blessings. But also to have faith and trust God when every, everything seems to be falling apart. When life hurts so bad that you can't even stand it. That's when we can really trust God. And this is what these uh, stories in the Bible, this isn't the only one like it, are telling us is that the invisible hand of God is moving. That's what providence is, that God is working behind the scenes. But here's the other theme in this series, patience. It's about our patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly, like if if somebody were to describe me, probably patience wouldn't be on the top of the list, right? Uh, Patience, I think it's funny that I'm teaching this book because I am not a patient person normally, okay? I'm, I tend to be, uh, at least historically, pretty driven, pretty focused, pretty, I want things done now, I want to move ahead, let's go, I don't want to wait for anything. Uh, this will come out like when I'm driving. Anybody else? Get out of the way. Why are you in the left lane? Why are you in the left lane? We're traveling 60 miles an hour. Anybody else? I get so frustrated. I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Did they not learn how to drive? And then I'm like, my kids are in the car. I'm saying all these things. They're like, oh, nice, Pastor Harvey. Uh, You're very, or or like trying to get out of the door uh, with my family sometimes. I get very impatient. Because if I say, hey, we're leaving at 10, I mean we're leaving at 9.55. And they think 10 means 10-ish. So 10.15, 10.20, yeah, we're fine. And I get so angry. I just sit there and stew. One thing I've told young men is they're thinking about getting married is if you want to prepare for marriage, go sit in your car for 15 minutes before you go anywhere, okay? Because you learn how to be patient. Unfortunately, I don't do that. I stand there and go, 15 minutes. We're leaving in 15. And everybody's angry at me. It's, it's bad, okay? So I'm not exactly a patient person. And those are trivial patient things. But what about patience when life is falling apart? What about patience when God is taking five years to do something you would hope he'd do in a month. What about patience when you don't know where things are going? You don't know how it's going to end up. You just have to trust God and be patient. Well, that's even harder than traffic, right? Well, that's what this book is teaching us. And it's also teaching us that sometimes it's our own decisions that lead to our pain. And and, and so we make decisions that are harmful to ourselves, And then we blame God that we're going through something. And what God says throughout this whole book is, I'm there. I'm with you. But I'm not necessarily going to remove all the pain. And I'm not necessarily going to save you from all your bad decisions. But I will be there with you, and I will forgive you, and I'll walk with you, and I'll be your father. So that's what we're going to see in this uh, fantastic book. So my main point today is this. Life is hard but God is there. Life is hard, but God is there. It's not life is hard, but God is going to always fix it the way we want. 
God just says, I'll be there. I'll be with you in the midst of the pain. All right, let's go ahead now and jump into this story. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So there's a couple of things I want you to notice in verse 1. First thing, it's during the days when the judges ruled. Uh, if you're not familiar with the period of the judges in the Bible, it is the most dark period in the Bible. If you want to read a book that would be like TVMA, worse, like more uh, intense and worse than your favorite HBO show, okay? I'm talking about, yeah, just read it, okay? If you want to read a book uh, like that, read the book of Judges. It is unbelievable what happens in the book of Judges. And the reason why is because the refrain throughout the book of Judges is this. Uh, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what created the disaster in Israel. Everybody just decided, ah, we'll just do what's right in our own eyes. Instead of trusting God, instead of looking to our leadership that is leading us on behalf of God, instead, we'll just do what's right in our own eyes. Sounds like Los Angeles, right? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Well, that's what was going on in the book of Judges, and that's the time period the book of Ruth happens. Now, the second thing that we find out is that there is a famine in the land. Now, oftentimes famines in the Old Testament uh, were tied to disobedience. So during the book of time of the Judges, uh, Israel was incredibly disobedient to God, uh, just completely pushed his law away and, and the faith away and, and found themselves uh, worshiping other gods and doing all kinds of other things. And so a famine came upon the land. Now, not every famine is a punishment from God, but for the ancient Israelites, they had a covenant with God that he would provide with for them, and they would receive all these blessings if they obeyed, but they would receive the curses of the covenant if they disobeyed. And so the old covenant had that dynamic to it. The new covenant doesn't necessarily have that dynamic to it. But there is, uh, there's some, the famine is likely happening because of the vast disobedience of the entire nation. And God is trying to get their attention uh, by allowing this famine to come upon their land. Third thing I want you to notice in verse 1 is that is, uh, this, the events begin, are going to take place mostly in Bethlehem. Now, uh, you ever heard of Bethlehem before, right? You've heard of Christmas, Bethlehem? Well, what's interesting about that is that this city, Bethlehem, and this story of Ruth is directly tied to the other story you know about Bethlehem and birth of Jesus. In fact, if this story of Ruth doesn't happen, that story in Bethlehem does not happen. So God is working in this story to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, all right. The last thing I want you to notice is this in verse 1. They leave Israel because there's a famine, and they go to Moab. Now, for most of us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But God had made a covenant with his people, and the covenant was this. I want you I, you, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will make my dwelling with you, here is my law, faithfully obey it, and I will bring your redemption, I will bring the Messiah in one day. But it was directly tied to the people living together in the land with faith. So for an, Isra for an Israelite to leave the land of Israel and to go and live in another place would be similar to you saying, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to go to church. 
I'm just gonna, I'm sick of the church. I'm going to leave the church. Church is too hard. I'm just going to uh, be a Christian on my own out there. And so they leave the land of Israel and they go to Moab. Now Moab is a place where uh, they worshipped all kinds of other false gods. And these, and these religions had elements to them that would make you blush. Uh, the way in which they worshipped God oftentimes was through prostitution in the temples. Also in Moab, they would sacrifice their children to the gods as a way of trying to please the gods. And so they're going to a very dark land in Moab, a place where they don't believe in the true God, and they're going to live there. Why? Because life in Israel was a little rough. There's a famine going on. Uh, there was economic depression, and we want to get ahead, and so we don't want to live here. We don't want to have to deal with the famine, and we're not too concerned about the covenant, so we're going to now leave, and we're going to go to Moab, where, yes, they worship all these false gods, but we can you know, make a better living, okay? So very, that's the kind of the setup of the story. Now, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they didn't just go to Moab to get some goods and go back home. They decided to move to Moab, which would not be a problem in this day and age, but in the Old Covenant, it was a problem because your covenant with God was tied to the land. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So the first thing I want you to notice is this. Naomi, one of the main characters of the story, loses her husband. Don't let that just kind of pass. I mean, we're just reading the story, but imagine the pain. Imagine the loneliness, the sadness that she's feeling. Well, she still has her two sons. Verse 3. Uh, verse 4, sorry. The two sons, these took Moabite wives. Okay, there's another problem. It, uh, it's not a problem that there was like an interracial marriage. There's never a problem of that in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, people, there's interracial marriages. It's a problem to marry somebody who is out of another faith that believes in different gods. And God has warned against this because he knows what it will bring, the pain that it will bring in his people's life. But instead, they go ahead and they marry uh, women who don't believe in the true God of Israel, and they believe in this other religion, and they're Moabite women. Uh, and God works in the midst of that as well. And I want you to see that even in our dumb decisions, even in our bad decisions, even in our sinful decisions, God is working with mercy and care. Uh, he's not just waiting to punish you and to snuff you out. He will discipline us, but he disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us to correct us. It's never out of anger or hatred that he disciplines us. Okay? So they go ahead and they're, you know, they, they leave the land. They're now marrying outside of the faith, uh, which was a huge no-no in the Old co Covenant. And uh, yeah, they take Moabite wives. The name of, of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, you already know that this is titled the Book of Ruth. And so he marries outside of the faith, and he marries a woman that doesn't believe in his God. But over time, we're going to see Ruth does end up coming to faith in the true God of Israel. And I want you to see how God works in that. 
even in his disobedience, God worked. And God brought about the redemption of the world eventually. And this is what providence is all about. It's God's hand moving in ways we can't see. And he's preparing things a hundred years from now. He's working in your lives in 10,000 ways, and you're probably aware of like five of them. And, and so we ha- this is where we can deeply trust the God that we have. Well, look what it says in verse 4. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And verse 5, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. So now she, her husband has died, and now both of her sons die. And she is now left with two daughter-in-laws alone in a country she does not know. She'd been there for about 10 years. And she's alone with these two Moabite women, uh, Naomi is. Devastation has come to Naomi's life. Okay? Many of you have faced devastation. Many of you have hit periods in your life that were unbelievably overwhelming. And so you can understand. You could, you could feel the pain. Maybe think about your own pain and, and, and then think about hers and go, okay, that's what's going on here. And then now let's... Look at that, and then let's watch what God does in the midst of all this. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the famine is gone, and Naomi hears about it, and she says, Okay, uh, we're here in Moab. I'm now alone. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I guess I'll go back home. What does that sound like? There's another story in the Bible about a prodigal son who runs away, comes to the end of himself. He says, well, I guess I'll go back home. I guess I'll go back to my father. And she is saying, I guess I'll go back to my God. I guess I'll go back to my family. I guess I'll go back to the covenant because I've lost everything. And this is often the way God works in our lives. We don't listen sometimes until we have nothing else. You don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And then you go, okay, I'm here. Let's go. So she now is going to return, and uh, she says, the Lord has visited his people. So even though she's in disobedience, she has faith that God is still there, and he's visiting, he's taking care of his people. Now, verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went in the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, so Naomi, as they're on their way, she begins to have a conversation with them. And she says, look, it doesn't make sense for you guys to come to Israel with me. Uh, You guys can now go back to your mother's house, which is interesting. You would usually say your father's house, but notice how all the men are dying? There was probably war. And so all the men were dying. And so she says, go back to your mother's house. And the hope would be, you go back to your mother's house and that you can get another arranged marriage. And, you know, you can, you can get married. You can have babies. You can, and here's what you need to know if you want to understand the story. In this time period, women were second-class citizens. In some cases, women were thought of as property of the man. Women had very little rights, and the only way you could get ahead as a woman is to get married. And especially if you could get married and have babies. 
that made, in the ancient world that was so important. So to not go back and get married means that there, it's a vow of poverty in a sense. It's, a, it's, it's saying, I'm going to live in devastation. There really was not much uh, for a woman to do in this ancient world other than being attached to a man. And so this was a whole different situation. And then in the midst of that conversation, Naomi says to them, you should go back. You should just go back. And so one of them does go back. Goes back to her mother's house and is going to take that route, hopefully get married. But Ruth says, no, I'm not going back to Moab. Because I've been with you and your family. And I've heard about your God. And I've heard about his covenants. And I'm going to go with you because my people are going to be your people. And your God is going to be my God. She's, this is an ancient way to make a confession of faith because the covenant that God made with his people, it's called the tripartite promise, and it goes like this. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make my dwelling with you. It's the three-part promise. So God promises, and that, that promise is still working now with us. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will make my dwelling with you. So when she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's making a confession of the tripartite promise of God, the covenantal promise of the Old Testament, saying, I am part of that covenant now because I have faith in the true God. And even though I'm not an Israelite, the true God allows people from these other nations to come in. In the Old Covenant, you had to come into Israel to follow the true God. In the New Covenant, the church now goes out to all the nations. But back then, the nations had to come to Israel to come and worship the true God. And she's saying, I'm going to Israel because I am now a believer in the true God. I want you to uh, see uh, exactly what she says. Verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Where your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So now Naomi and Ruth are on their way back uh, to live in Israel. Out of the devastation of life, two women clinging together. And like I said, in the ancient world, they would have had nothing. But they had each other. And they're now going to go back to Israel to see what will happen uh, in the midst of the devastation. So look at verse 19. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now it had been a 10 to 12 years since they had been home. And so you can imagine that Naomi has aged a little bit, right? Maybe put on a few pounds, a few wrinkles, right? They're like, wait a minute, that's Naomi. And it was a small town, so the whole town is stirred up because Naomi was an important part of this community and just up and left. And now she's back, but she's back without her sons. And she's back without her husband. And she comes with a Moabite woman, which would have been shocking to the ancient Israelite people, like uh, this Moabite woman. But the Moabite woman is making a confession of faith, so of course she is accepted into the community. Verse 20, she said to them, as they were all talking to her, this is Naomi talking, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Now the word Naomi means sweet. 
So her mom gave her the name Sweet. But she says, don't call me Sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. So even though, listen, even though she has enough faith to return to her God, even though she has enough faith to say God has brought his blessing on his people, even though she has enough faith to, to accept Ruth's confession of faith and bring her with her, she's still in a place of bitterness, of sadness, of anger. And this is actually very normal. We, it's possible for us to have faith in God and love him and trust him, but still be carrying the wounds. The wounds just don't go away. They have to be healed. And she is deeply wounded by what she has been through. So she says, I don't even want to be called sweet anymore. I'm changing my name to bitter. You guys can call me bitter. Can you imagine? You're like, okay. Like, that's uh, all right. We'll call you bitter. Uh, and this is her reasoning. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So even though she has faith in God and she's returning, she still thinks God is cruel. She still thinks God is not with her, doesn't love her, that he just wants to punish her and hurt her. And this is actually fairly normal. We have a script within our head that we develop throughout life, possibly from our family of origin, possibly from somewhere else, that we think negatively of ourselves. And because we think negatively of ourselves, we think negatively of other people, and we also think negatively of God. And th there is good reason to think negatively of other people, although we shouldn't. And there's good reason to think negatively of ourselves, although we shouldn't. But there is no reason to think negatively of God. Because God has only been true ever. But she's so disoriented by life. And this is the, this is the reality. It's not just sin. It's disorientation. She's so disoriented by life that she says, just call me bitter. Now, I know that you all have been through things and there's things that you're carrying and there's bitterness that you're carrying. There's wounds that need to be healed, uh, just like me. And we can get in this place where we uh, feel that way about God. But I want you to see also her faith. It's a mix of faith and doubt, which is always how we walk with God. Nobody's, nobody is ever walking with God fully, all the way. Yes, I believe, I trust, I'm all good, I don't doubt, I don't sin. Nobody. So get it out of your mind and stop beating yourself up. But here I want you to see two things. One, she has faith, but she's so disoriented, her wounds are controlling her. All right. She says in verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. The two returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, uh, a great uh, theologian, Mary Evans, uh, says this. I read her commentary this week and uh, it's going to be the second quote from Mary Evans. For those doing the slides, it'll be up on the screen. I'm sorry, it's the first quote. All right, listen to this. The author is encouraging the reading of the whole narrative in light of God's sovereignty, both over the forces of nature that brought and alleviated the famine and over the conception of a child 
in this particularly needy family. It is worth noting the way in which the various actors do talk about God in their dialogue with each other and examining how far what they say does or does not reflect an understanding of the sovereignty of God. So here, here's what it's saying. They understand that God is in control and that he's working all things, that he is in control of nature and people and all of these things. So there's an understanding of God's sovereignty, that he's ruling. But there's a misunderstanding in the way we interpret his ways. And this is not just them, it's us. God is ruling, and then we put our own narratives on what is happening. But that's not faith. Faith is to trust him and to reject the, the false narratives that we put on him. And so, all they, although they understand the sovereignty of God, they, they misunderstand the meaning of the events of their lives. And that's not just them, that is also us too. We often misunderstand the meaning of the events of our life. Now the second quote from Mary Evans. She says this, the two of them have arrived in Bethlehem and have no apparent means of support. They arrive as, as the barley harvest was beginning. That is somewhere around the end of April. This information is probably given simply to prepare us for the story that follows, which is set in the harvest field. But it is possible that the reference in verse 22 to the harvest and to Ruth's accompanying Naomi are deliberately drawing the reader's attention to the fact that Naomi's despair had not taken all the relevant facts into account. So what it's saying is this. She is completely focused on her bitterness. But what she's not seeing is, is all the goodness of God. She's not seeing the way he's providing for her and the way that now Ruth has stuck with her and she does not have to be alone. She's not seeing all the blessings. And this is what wounds and pain do to us. They cause us to not be able to see the blessing. It's not just sin. She's not just being rebellious. Stop sinning. No. She's wounded. She's hurting. And in our pain, we misinterpret life. When we live out of our wounds, we misinterpret life. And God is inviting us to something different. He's saying, I want to heal that. And when I heal that, you'll be able to see what I'm doing. But I need you to trust me when you can't see. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. When we cannot trace his hand, we can always trust his heart. My friend Tony Morita, who is a amazing theologian and Bible commentator, he said this about this section. He said, when the times are dark, God is still at work. And it may take generations, even centuries, to see the full glory of what he is doing. There are blessings in her life now, but what Naomi does not know, what Ruth does not know, is that this travel back to Bethlehem, this returning home, this small faith with a wounded faith was all God needed. And they go to Bethlehem to bring about something that is going to save the whole world. They don't know that. You see, they go back to Bethlehem and Naomi uh, ends up having a grandchild through Ruth. And Ruth is not of the nation of Israel. And yet, she is now in the family line of King David. Now, whenever you would read Bethlehem in the Old Testament, you would think, oh, King David, that's where King David was born. And whenever you read it in our time, we say, oh, that's where Jesus was born. It's both. What God is doing, he's working something so much greater than Naomi could ever possibly imagine. 
And he's doing it through her wounds. He's doing it through the pain of her life. So don't always assume that the pain of our lives is God's discipline and anger and punishment. Sometimes the pain in our life is the way in which God is bringing about redemption. In 1774, William Cowper wrote one of my favorite hymns, He's, and there's a line in the hymn that just fits this perfectly. It says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So the feeble sense is the human sense. Don't judge the Lord by your human sense. Trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence. So so when his providence seems dark, it seems frowning, you must know that behind that frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In other words, he's only working for your good. You're his child. And here we see he's working for their good. Because what is going to happen is Ruth is going to have a child who's going to have a child who's going to have a child who's going to be King David. And then King David will be the great king that prepares the way for what is to come. Because there will be a child and a great-grandchild and child, 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 child. And then one day a child will come into Bethlehem to save the world. And he'll come in the midst of a dark situation with pain. They try to kill him. He enters the world in the midst of the darkness and saves it. So don't always assume that the darkness is all dark with God. Because in the darkness, he's actually working. Behind the scenes in ways that we do not know. And this is how he brings about the redemption of the world, but this is also how he's working in your life. He's working behind the scenes. He's working 10,000 ways you do not even know. Jesus entered into Bethlehem later and he entered into the pain of this world and he took on wounds he took on sorrow he took on sin and he died upon the cross it took the darkness of the cross to bring about the resurrection it's always darkest before the dawn there must be a death before a resurrection and this is what we have to understand about our lives as well that there must be a death before resurrection. So our pain, our wounds, are actually tools that God uses to bring about our good. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are humbled to think about your work and how you're in control of all things how in your providence you're guiding all things. Give us patience to wait for you. Obviously, Naomi was struggling with patience because of her wounds. Teach us through this story to trust you when it's dark, that you're going to bring about something good, that you're working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Give us faith, Lord, to trust you in the wounds and trust you in the dark. We pray this in the name of the Father of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On the table, we have bread and wine, grape juice as well. And um, this represents what we just talked about. 
I mean, what was the darkest moment in all of history? What was the worst moment in all of history? It was the crucifixion of the Son of God, the wounding of the Son of God. And yet that becomes the greatest moment in all of history as well. And this is how God works. The darkest moments can be the greatest moments with God. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're saying in faith. We're saying, I take his body that was broken for me. Broken for me. Wounded for me. And I I take his blood that was shed for me. This is a dark thing. His death. But we know that this dark thing, his death, brings about the salvation of our souls. And that he rises again. So with that, for for those of you who are Christians, um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment to remember that. If you're not a Christian, first of all, I want to say we're honored that you're here and you can come to our church as long as you want without becoming a Christian. Just come and listen and uh, hear what we have to say. Uh, But you shouldn't participate in this until you become a Christian, just like you shouldn't participate in baptism until you become a Christian. Because this is something sacred for us as Christians that it represents our faith. So for you, maybe you just sit in your chair and say, God, are you there? Are you real? And um, let him speak to you. But if you became a Christian today, you heard the word of God, you heard about the gospel of Jesus, then I would invite you to come to the table and take your first communion. Let that be your first act as a Christian. And then we need to baptize you soon. So with that, let us rise as we will in the resurrection and go to the table of our Lord.